This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, maybe we can start with uh, a prayer, and then we can begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Spirit they may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. My name is Father Dominic Legg. I'm the director of the Thomistic Institute in Washington, D.C., and a professor of theology at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington. So the title of the talk is Divine Indwelling, and the mystery of God's presence. So, Jesus promises to come to us and to dwell with us, even to be in us. And the question is, what does that mean? In John chapter 14, he says to his disciples, words that I'm sure are familiar to you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then a few lines later, Jesus says, I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So we hear there, in the space of a few lines, this very profound spiritual truth that Jesus will send the Holy Spirit to dwell with us, to be in us, and that he will come to us with his Father, and they will make a home within us. Okay, that's very beautiful, and it's profoundly true. It's a profound and powerful spiritual truth, and you can go to the bank on it. I mean, this is uh, one of the things that is the great privilege of the Catholic priest. It's like God has given you his checkbook, and you can write checks on God's account, and you don't even have to pay them. God pays them. So this is one of the great joys uh, of my life, is to speak about truths like this and to make promises to people, which promises are not uh, in thin air. They are written in the gospel. And so you can absolutely go to the bank on these promises. God is going to pay them. He's going to pay the check. So I'm writing you a check today to say, God promises to be in you and to make his home with you. Okay, so what does that mean? How does that work? How can you help that to grow? How can we know that it's happening in us? And what can we do to be more aware of it? St. Thomas Aquinas has marvelous insights into this which I think are foundational for the spiritual life. So my goal 
in the next few minutes is to go over his teaching on the divine presence and the supernatural life of grace in us and the important consequences this has or should have for our spiritual life. So let's, let's begin at, in a way, the, the broadest and lowest level and then work our way up to the heights of the divine indwelling. So let's start by just talking about God and his presence in the world. That's already very mysterious. Normally, we think of presence, if, if we were to just ta start talking on a human level about how is something present, we normally think of it, first of all, in terms of physical location. So, I mean, you look around this room, it's a rather simple room. Uh, it has a bunch of chairs in it, right? So the chairs, this chair right here, is present in the room, by which we mean a physical presence in this location. Now, for inanimate things, it's hard to speak of a presence apart from its physical location, although perhaps it's possible. We don't talk about a chair being spiritually present in the room. Really, the chair is just present if it's physically there. Now, maybe it could be present to someone in another location through an image, a painting of the chair, or a description of the chair in some sense, or, you know, the Zoom broadcast of the chair. So we're used to now talking about a kind of virtual presence. Um, but it doesn't exercise much of a power of presence if it's not physically there. And, you know, a chair, this chair is pretty much identical to the other chairs. So there's not that much that's distinctive about this, this personal chair. It's not, in fact, well, the problem is it's not personal, right? It's just, it's just material. But persons can be present in a higher way. Because persons are spiritual realities, even when they are also material realities. So some persons are both material and spiritual. Those are human persons. And some persons are purely spiritual, angels and God. Persons can be present even when their physical bodies are not in the room. So we experience this, I think, on a natural level in our human lives uh, often enough when we have a person's presence through a digital signal, like through the computer, or even through a letter. You know, it's not just the digital medium that can make a person present. But in a certain way, if you receive a letter from someone, their words, their ideas, their mind can be present to us even in a certain sense, the force of their will. It's kind of an odd thing that um, you might have someone who either for good or for ill can be present by their ideas and their force of will in a group of people. And it might block things going forward. You know, you have someone that you know is really, really opposed to this idea. And even though that person isn't present in the room, everyone else in the room knows that they cannot do that thing. And then should that person, it, sometimes it happens in, in families or in organizations, that person leaves the organization, and all of a sudden something becomes possible. Uh, that's kind of mysterious, the way just a person's force of will can, can exert an influence on other people around them. Notice that these are dimensions of the mind or of the spirit, the zone of the spirit, that what you think and what you will 
can be present to other people. You can make it present through your body. You can also use other instruments for that, like a letter or a digital signal. And we can really feel a connection to other people in this way, through these kinds of presences. Okay, so it's true also, by the way, of the liturgy. Active participation in the liturgy doesn't just mean being bodily present, as you know. You can be bodily present at Mass and not really be present. This happens all the time to kids who are playing video games. You know, they're, they, you know my brother uh, playing video games is told by my mother to take out the trash. And he says, yes, sure, I'll do it. But then he doesn't take out the trash. And, and an hour later, she says, hey, I told you to take out the trash. And he says, no, you didn't. I never, you never said that to me. Uh, it's because he was physically present. The, the, the sound entered his ear, but it did not enter his mind. So there's, we all know this phenomenon. There's a kind of availability to, uh, to something or a non-availability, and you can be present or not, even when you're not, you may be physically there, but you're not really present. Okay, this is all helpful for us to understand when we talk about God's presence. Because God, in his proper nature, is a spirit. He does not have a body. Now, of course, Jesus has a body, and Jesus is God. So there's much more we could say about that, but I'm going to bracket that off and save that for another talk. God in himself, in his divine nature, does not have a body. So he cannot be present, or he isn't present, in the same way that a body is present in a location, like a chair. We're talking about something else. Now the question is, is it something less? Is it a lesser presence? Because it's not a bodily presence that we can sense through our bodily senses? Or is it perhaps the case that the bodily presence is less than the spiritual presence? And actually, I think that is true. Because we tend to think that physical things are more real than spiritual things. But that's not, that's not the case. Spiritual things are more powerful than physical things. So God can be present in a higher or deeper way than any physical thing can be present. And let me explain how Aquinas understands that. Matter is the lowest thing in the hierarchy of being. It has the least being, in a way. Spiritual things are more real. That's maybe hard for us moderns to understand, but it was very true and obvious to St. Thomas Aquinas, who says things like this. It's not so much true to say that your soul is in your body, it's the way we normally think of it, as to say that your body is in your soul. Because your body is made to be what it is by your soul. Your soul is actually much more powerful reality than your body is. And your soul is going to last forever, which your body of its own nature uh, doesn't, although God by his divine power will raise it on the last day and give it back to you. Matter is lower than spirit. And this is why the fictional demon screw tape in the screw tape letters, that's that uh, great work by C.S. Lewis, tells his fictional demon nephew 
to keep the man, the nephew is charged with tempting away from Christianity, focused on material things, on lower things, convinced that material things are all that exist. That's a demonic temptation because the things of the Spirit are higher. Okay, so this brings us to the truth that God is the creator of the world and its source. Okay, that's not surprising to you, I'm sure. But by, by this, Aquinas does not mean that God simply starts the universe existing and then lets it continue on its own, like a watchmaker who winds up a clock and then lets it run. Rather, according to Aquinas, creation is a relation of radical dependence on God at every moment. And this is the first way that Aquinas understands God to be present. God is present because he is constantly holding everything in being. And in fact, God in himself is being itself, absolutely speaking. On a philosophical level, that's what Aquinas thinks is the best definition of God insofar as we can formulate some positive statement about God. God is, absolutely. He subsists, or as we learn in Exodus chapter 3, when God speaks to Moses from the burning bush, I am who am. I am who am. So creation is not a beginning point in time, but a supporting of God of all things at all moments, giving them their existence. And that is already to share a bit in the nature of God, to participate in some way, some very distant way. Because God is, and then he gives being to other things. So this is the first text on the handout, where Aquinas is talking about how God is present in the world. So this is from the Summa Theologiae, and I'll read this text. Since God is very being by his own essence... Created being must be his proper effect, as to ignite is the proper effect of fire. Think about that analogy. If you put something in the fire, it catches fire. And Aquinas is saying the same thing about God. God is the fire. And the closer we move to him, the more we are set on fire. So God is being itself, and the more things are, the more they are sharing in him. Now, God causes this effect, he goes on, in things, not only when they first begin to be, but as long as they are preserved in being, as light is caused in the air by the sun, as long as the air remains illuminated. Therefore, as long as a thing has being, God must be present to it according to its mode of being. And then a very interesting observation but being is innermost in each thing. Hence, it must be that God is in all things and innermostly, most intimately, actually, is maybe a better translation of the Latin. There's two other traditional ways that Aquinas talks about God's presence in the world, in all things. First is by essence, we've just talked about that. Then by presence and by power. By presence, Aquinas means that God sees everything. Now, that might be a little uh, intimidating to meditate on as a spiritual practice. God sees everything at every moment. He doesn't look at you 
like a judge who is examining what he can find in you to condemn. He looks at you as a father with love. So this is another way to practice the awareness of the presence of God. Aware that God is holding you in being and holding all other things else around you in being. But also that God sees you and he gazes on you. He gazes on you with love at every possible moment. Then a third way, power. This is a traditional way of speaking about God's presence in all things, by his power. He gives things not only their being, but also their natures or essences. That is, he makes each thing to be the kind of thing that it is and gives it its very desires or inclinations. All things sort of move towards a goal. Ultimately, that goal is God. And God is thus the source not only of the existence of a thing, but also of what it does. And so he can providentially guide all things. So his power is present everywhere. God is constantly exercising a guiding and shaping influence on all things according to his providential plan. Aquinas thinks God is constantly directing everything back to himself. It's wonderful to think about that. Okay, but we're really interested in a higher mode of presence. That's what Jesus is talking about in John's John's gospel. God's presence in us in a special way, a supernatural way, through grace. So God can be more present in us than he can be present in a chair or a rock or a tree or a dog. Why is that? Because we have minds. Because we have minds that are capable of a kind of spiritual reception, capable of knowing him and loving him. Now, this is, may sound to you like, well, that's not a very strong sense of presence to know and love God. But think for a moment what God is. He's a pure spirit. What does God do above all? God knows and he loves. So these are the most typical divine activities. And it's precisely these kinds of activities that we were made for. So God wants us to know not only things in the world through our senses, but also he wants us to know supernatural things that we can rise to through grace. This is tied closely to Aquinas' teaching on us as images of God. We're made in the image of God. And the second text that I've given you on the handout talks about that. It talks about three levels of the image of God in us. The first level is insofar as we have a rational mind. We have a mind capable of knowing and loving God. So that's just the capacity to do this. It's not yet to do it. It's just to be capable of doing it. That's the first level of the image. The second level is that we actually or habitually know or love God, although imperfectly through grace. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Actually or habitually. So you habitually know God when you have the faith, but you're not thinking about God right now. And then you can actually think about the truth of God, the truth who is God, and your mind now is really doing what faith enables it to do. 
habitually, in the background, you might say. The third level of the image is when we reach heaven, and then we are perfectly conformed to God. We'll get back to that at the end of the talk. So when we receive the gift of grace, we receive uh, things on two different levels, according to Aquinas. There's a level that affects the soul as a whole, and then the, the powers of the soul. So you have a rational soul. That's the essence of what it means to be human. When you receive sanctifying grace, God elevates your rational nature and gives it a sharing in the divine nature. That's already a wonderful teaching from the letter of St. Peter on how we are given to share in the divine nature. Just as Jesus took on our nature so that it would be joined to God, so also, insofar as we are configured to Christ and receive his grace, we receive a share in his divine nature, in our humanity. So that's speaking about the level of our soul, but this then has an immediate consequence for the powers of our soul, that is for our mind, its ability to know and to love. Insofar as our mind is elevated to know God, this is the grace of faith or the virtue of faith. And insofar as the heart is made capable of loving God above all things, this is the grace of charity or the gift, the theological virtue of charity. So these are ways, as it were, that grace in the soul infuses itself into the highest part of our minds and then works its way down from there. So the third text talks about how, as we receive these two gifts, faith and charity, we are made like the divine persons of the Son, who proceeds as the word of the Father by way of intellect, and the Holy Spirit, who proceeds by way of love, from the Father and the Son, the nexus of love from the Father and Son. So we are made assimilated, we are made like those divine persons, and they really become present in us, making us to be like themselves. What is most distinctive about the Word is reproduced in our souls. What is most distinctive about the Holy Spirit, what makes Him a divine person, is reproduced in our souls, in that charity, which is the Holy Spirit's effect in us. So this is, has some very important practical consequences for us. Because uh, when we begin to live the life of grace, what is happening is our minds are being changed at the highest level. But this does not immediately have its effect all the way down through the person, as you know very well. So some things that are lower in us continue to need some work, some reshaping by God's grace. So it's very important not to judge about the divine indwelling based on how you feel. Your feelings come from your bodies, not from your souls. Feelings are principally coming from the bottom up and they have a bodily element. Grace is a spiritual reality that cannot be directly sensed. 
And so this is a common mistake that people often make to think that they should judge their spiritual lives based on how they are feeling. But theologically speaking, that is not a good way to do it. You should judge your spiritual life by your use of the theological virtues. Are you making acts of faith in God? Are you making acts of love and of hope in God? And if you are, that is a very good probable sign that you are in a state of grace and that God is dwelling in you, even if you don't feel that way. So some people will say, oh, you know, like John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila, perhaps I am experiencing a dark night of the soul. Maybe God is absent. Well, you can say that God is absent insofar as you don't feel his presence. But it's not theologically correct to say that he's absent. He's not absent when you don't feel him. In fact, he may be more present insofar as your act of faith is now more profound, your act of charity is more profound. That is, God is perfecting our powers of mind, and as we make those acts of faith and charity, he is more powerfully present in us. So you could reflect on your own experience of God's presence, a moment of clarity, perhaps, of knowing something about God, knowing that God is your Father, that he is providing and protecting you, providing for you, protecting you, that he forgives you. And you can understand how you can say, God is more present to me in those moments. Or a moment of love when the heart soars towards God in thanksgiving, adoration, praise. How you sense that God is more present in those moments. He's moving us to love him as he loves himself, in fact. But even when we don't feel the emotional consolation of those acts, God is present and he is moving us to do those things. So the habitus of grace, faith, hope, charity, these are more stable than our feelings and more reliable. In the end, they are much more important for judging God's presence. So I'd like to conclude by talking about how you can grow in God's presence in you and how you can assess your spiritual life. Maybe we should start with assessing your spiritual life, and this is the last text on your handout. This is from a, a part of the Summa Theologiae where St. Thomas is asking, do sinners love themselves? And his answer to that is actually, uh, well, it seems like they do because they do what they prefer instead of what God asks them to do. So it seems like they love themselves more than God. But Aquinas says, actually, it turns out that they don't love themselves. They kind of hate themselves. And this is also true in our own spiritual experiences. You know, like when you sin, you have something in you desired the sin and something in you detests the sin. And you are then divided against yourself. And sinners, sin does that to us. It divides us against ourselves and makes us feel unfree because the thing that we know we should do, we no longer feel capable of doing. So 
When Aquinas talks about growing in the spiritual life or judging whether we're growing, he uses this as a kind of measure whether we are more and more loving what is best in us, acting according to what is best in us. And it's not based so much on our feelings, but on our acts of mind. What our mind is doing, not what our bodies are feeling or sensing. So let's look at Aquinas' text. He says, The good look upon their rational nature or the inward man. This is to Saint, he's just quoted St. Paul about the, in, the inner man. The good look upon their rational nature or the inward man as being the chief thing in them. And in this way, they think of themselves to be what they are. Your soul is, is more you than your body. On the other hand, the wicked reckon their sensitive and corporeal, their bodily nature, or the outward man to hold the first place. And thus, since they don't know themselves rightly, they do not love themselves rightly, but love what they think themselves to be. They love their bodily goods more than the spiritual goods, which really are who they are. So then he says, well, if you have an inner man and an outer man, so the bodily part of our nature, the spiritual part of our nature, you should love the inner man like a friend. I've omitted that part of the text. So then Aquinas is talking about loving. If, what do you do if you love a friend? You should love your soul or the good of your soul a little bit like this. So he catalogs these, these loves. Every friend wishes his friend to be and to live. Secondly, he desires good things for him. Thirdly, he does good things to him. Fourthly, he takes pleasure in his company. Fifthly, he is of one mind with him, rejoicing and sorrowing in almost the same thing. And then he makes this application. This is how you can sort of assess your spiritual life, according to Thomas Aquinas. In this way, the good love themselves as to the inward man because they wish the preservation of their soul in its integrity. They desire good things for him, namely spiritual goods. They do their best to obtain them. And they take pleasure in entering into their own hearts because they find their good thoughts in the present, the memory of past good, and the hope of future goods, all of which are the sources of pleasure. Likewise, they experience no clashing of wills, no being divided in our own hearts, since their whole soul tends to one thing. So this, Aquinas thinks, actually is a good way to assess your spiritual state. Do you love the inner man more than the outer man? Do you have a kind of harmony in your heart? And the more you act in that way, the more God actually is powerfully present and dwelling in you. Okay, perhaps you say, well, yes, Father, I have that to some degree, but I'd like to have more. How do you get more of that? And here, the prescription is very simple. Prayer. Prayer is indispensable. That means raising the mind and the heart to God. And above all, Aquinas says, prayer for yourself. We may be sometimes a little reluctant to do that because we think we should be more generous in our prayers. But Aquinas thinks you should start by praying for yourself. Because when you pray for other people, 
You can obtain good things for them, but you cannot dispose them to receive them. When you pray for yourself, you dispose yourself to receive what God wants you to have. So you are more receptive when you pray for yourself. So pray for a growth in faith, hope, and charity. Pray for loving spiritual things more. And God will grant that to you. I mean, it's wonderful to me that God really does pay these checks. If you ask him, he will give it. He loves to give it. It's his joy when we recognize our insufficiency in the spiritual life and therefore depend more on him. Because this is, after all, the truth about us and about our spiritual lives. Okay, so prayer. That's the first thing. Secondly, the sacraments. So the sacraments are the ordinary and most powerful way to grow in grace. Regular confession. Regular communion. Confessing with more attention. Trying to be more sorrowful for your sins. Trying to be more grateful for God's gift of mercy. Trying to be more attentive to God's presence, Christ's presence in the Eucharist. Trying to receive him more and more into your heart when you receive Holy Communion so that you really think about what you're doing when you receive Holy Communion. That's actually the recipe for spiritual growth. If you do that, if you pray and you regularly receive the sacraments, especially penance and the Eucharist, your spiritual life will grow. Certainly. It's one of those divine promises. Lastly, acts of charity. So you actually translate into concrete outward acts the spiritual desires that have been awakened in you by God. And God gives us these inspirations all the time. It might be to pray, to go to adoration, to give something to charity. It might be to actually do good things to the people around you, to be generous, to be kind, simply to be affable. This is one of the virtues. That's just being friendly to people, smiling at people, saying thank you, being attentive to what they need. Those are acts of charity. When you do those things, you will grow in your spiritual life. Okay, last point, and I'm going to conclude with this. God is a spirit. He is perfectly simple. The spiritual life actually is simple. We think it's difficult or complicated because we are complicated, not because God is complicated. And according to Aquinas, at the end of the day, growing in holiness is simple. It means divesting ourselves of our complexity and entering more and more into who he is, being made more like him. And who is he? He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you want to grow in your spiritual life, come to understand that. You already know it. You learned it, you know, in second grade or maybe earlier. It's what you've always known, that God is your Father, for example. Know that more and better, and you will enter more into God's reality. Faith, hope, and love. That's it. 
If you live according to faith, hope, and love, you will be a saint. It is very simple. It's not necessarily easy to do, but it's very simple. So this is Aquinas' recipe for the spiritual life. And actually, it's, it's a great joy to discover, in fact, that this mysterious truth that God is your Father, that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come to dwell in your heart through grace, this is a reality. It's already there if you're in a state of grace. Enter into it means becoming more simple. And yet, that simple truth is very, very powerful. So, that is the check I wanted to write to you from our Lord today, and I'm quite confident that he is going to pay it. So with that, uh, let me conclude and thank you, and uh, I think we have time for, for some conversation or some questions if you have any. Yeah, Michelle. For someone who hasn't had theology or philosophy in, what, 40 years, it's a little complex to understand. You make it easy, but at the same time, it's, it's more complex. Um, and in the beginning, you were talking a lot about the word mind, in my small mind. I think about the word soul. And so, if, if you just, you know, press... Yeah, you know, Aquinas actually uses those terms sometimes almost interchangeably, although in different contexts he will distinguish them. So um, the soul, you know, the soul is the form of the body. The soul also is the prince, the spiritual principle. We have a spiritual soul, so we have powers of our soul, which would be intellect and will. Now, normally... You might think that the intellect is the mind and the will is the heart or something like that. But for Aquinas, actually, intellect and will are both the mind. Uh, so that the will is our rational desire. We have bodily desires, food, drink, etc. Uh, our mind has desires. It desires whatever we perceive to be good, even if, if it's not bodily, uh, even if our body doesn't have an appetite for it. So someone who has cancer and knows that the cancer is threatening his life, wants the chemotherapy, even wants it very, very powerfully with his mind, even though that makes his body really sick. His body has no appetite of itself for the chemotherapy. The mind has a desire. So when Aquinas is talking about mind, he's talking about this capacity of the soul or of the person to know and to will or to love. Does that answer your question? You said that he uses them somewhat interchangeably. Well, I mean, because he thinks that the substance of the soul, uh, you know, is is really intellectual. It also has these lower powers. I mean, you can have minds that don't have bodies, angels, and art. You can have souls that don't have minds, dogs, even trees. Aquinas talks about vegetable souls. I mean, he does think that vegetables have souls. Uh, they, have they don't have immaterial souls, but they do have a principle of life in them. But a rational soul is, in a way, a mind. Yeah? When talking about a lot of the, the spirituality is interesting in the ordinary day, they talk about the, the, the presence of God. 
this, this physical through uh, spiritual, uh, physically flying. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. Making it easy. Somehow filled the room. Yeah. Um, versus, I try to look more inward now in terms of living presence of God on a day to day basis in terms of His presence in me and acting through me. I think that's what we're getting as we encounter the presence of God our day to day activities, not so much in the sense of He's around, but that He's in. That's right. And that He's manifesting Himself in my intellect, in my will, my acts of charity, you know, my acts of mind. And that's. Exactly. And the point is that that presence, we tend to think that it's like, oh, that's a very low sense of presence. But actually, it's more powerful than a physical presence. You know, if this room were filled with smoke, um, you know, we would think, okay, yeah, the smoke is really present to me. But it's overwhelming our bodily senses. But our minds are much, you know, can be more powerfully grasped by God and elevated by him, lifted up to to exist in him. And if you live more and more according to your body, that doesn't seem very significant to you. But the more you live according to the soul or the spirit, the more that reality becomes palpably real to you and powerful to you so that it can relativize all of the bodily things in the world, you know. So someone can then become totally willing to sacrifice his or her very life, bodily life, for the sake of, of the truth, which in a certain sense wouldn't make sense if, if the body was all that there was. I think we're, we're just about out of time, so maybe one final question. No, maybe, maybe we should just call it, call, it, call it done. Thank you for being here. It's wonderful to have you.